Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Good morning. That was pretty good. Uh, My name's Mark. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life, and I'm super excited that you're here to join us during this Christmas season, especially if you're here for the first time or, uh, or New Life is new to you. Maybe you're not here for the first time, but this is a one of the first times that you've been here. We're just so excited that you're here to join us. Uh, we've prepared for you. We prayed for you before we knew you, before you ever came through the doors here. We were here praying for you this morning and preparing for you to be here. We hope that you'll have a really refreshing and enjoyable time with us here at New Life, especially during this Christmas season. And during this Christmas season, we're actually in the middle of a series called Kingdom Come, which I'm sure you could guess from the bumper video. But uh, in this series, we're not just talking about the baby Jesus, although we are talking about the baby Jesus because this is Christmas season, so we should. But we're also talking about Jesus as King and King and Lord of Lords. We are talking about the fact that Jesus came in a manger, but in addition to that, we're talking about the life and death, and resurrection of Jesus, and how through that, he brought with him a new kingdom. Now, kingdom isn't a word that maybe we are super familiar with because we think of countries, or, or well, that's probably what we think of mostly is the word country, which would be very similar to what the, the, the Jews at the time, when they were listening to Jesus, heard when they thought of the word kingdom. And so this new kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, the Jews at the time who were hanging out with him about 2,000 years ago thought that he was bringing with him a kingdom that would have borders, that he, he would bring, be bringing about the kingdom of Israel, that, that the Israel at the time was opposed by the Roman Empire, oppressed by the Roman Empire, that they were going to get some sort of a ruler, maybe some sort of a king or some sort of a prince, maybe a general, a military leader, a political leader, who was going to be able to throw off the Roman Empire and return Israel to Israel. Their land would become theirs. They would reclaim their kingdom. But when Jesus came, he began talking about a kingdom that was very, very different. He began talking about something called the kingdom of God. And when we talk about Jesus, you almost can't avoid or, or you don't want to avoid talking about the kingdom of God because that's what he talked about all of the time. In fact, even before him, a man named John the Baptist, which we learned about through uh, Pastor uh, Brad and Pastor Chris over the past two weeks, came in the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus said very similar things, but he didn't bring with him a physical kingdom that you could see on maps. No, this kingdom wasn't going to have borders. It wasn't going to have a language. It didn't have a nationality. There was no politics involved. This new kingdom was invisible. You couldn't point out and say, here it is or there it is. But it existed in the followers of Jesus inside of their lives and inside of their hearts. This new kingdom was something entirely different. It was completely different than what the Jews 2,000 years ago expected. It was actually even different than what Jesus' closest friends expected. Yet over and over and over again, we see Jesus talking about something called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to look at something that Jesus said about the kingdom, something that he compared it to uh, today in the book of Matthew. So if you want, uh, you can open up your Bibles. I think we're in Matthew chapter 
13, uh, verses 44 to 46. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip there, you can. I'm going to be in the New Living Translation today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can always download the YouVersion Bible app on your phone. Uh, it's an awesome free app with all of, like, tons and tons of translations of the Bible that you can look through. It's called YouVersion. You can find it on any app store. And you can navigate with me to uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start this morning in verse 44. Verse 44 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Let me pray with us. Father, thank you for today and I thank you for your word. And I pray that if there's something that's gonna stick in our minds and our hearts and change our lives today, it wouldn't be my words, Father, but that it would be yours. And more importantly, that it would be your word today, Lord. Pray these things in your name, amen. So Jesus is gathered around a group of people and he's teaching them and he goes through in Matthew 13 a series of comments on what he calls the kingdom of God. And he begins telling them what it's like because he's told them you really can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't feel it. And so they're curious to know what exactly is this kingdom like anyway. So he begins giving them examples in these little stories, these little parables of what the kingdom of God is like. And he begins talking about a man who finds a treasure in a field. Now what I like about a lot of Jesus' teachings is it transcends the boundaries of time, right? It is applicable today just as it was applicable applicable to the lives of people 2,000 years ago, they're able to relate to it. And we can relate to the idea of finding a treasure in a field. Maybe for you it looks a little bit different, but let me just run you back to maybe when you were a child, a kid, and you daydreamed about hitting the jackpot or you daydreamed about finding some treasure. Right? Maybe it was as a kid you daydreamed about what it would be like to just find your little right, what would it be like just to find like one dollar was a lot of money. Um, a $20 bill laying on the ground. Wow, right? We all had that one friend who had like abnormal luck, right? Like one of our friends, their dog got hit on the road and her other friend found $20 bills laying on the ground, right? It was like there's a disparity in luck here. I had that anyway in my friends. I don't know about you. Um, I was able to bless a kid with his daydream not long ago. Uh, I got out of my car and I'm a forgetful individual and I don't put things where they belong. And so I tucked a $20 bill my wife had uh, entrusted to me. Um, I say entrusted to me because that is really what it was. It wasn't mine but I was trusted with it. And I had it in my pocket. Instead of putting it back in my wallet, I jumped out of my car, pulled out my phone, the $20 bill fluttered off to the ground, and I did not notice. Uh, a couple of minutes later, I grabbed the dog. I took her for a walk. I was walking around, and you can see from a parking lot above us where I was walking the dog, our house. And I saw a paper boy walking past our house. And this paper boy did something very strange. He stopped in front of my house, and I do not receive the papers. So I was like, what the heck is he doing in front of my house? Why is he stopping there? And he took a glance this way. He took a glance that way. He looked around. He shuffled over to my driveway. He bent over. He picked something up, put it in his pocket, and made his way to the next house that he had to drop. And I checked my pocket for the $20 bill, and it was not there. And I had to go tell my wife that I had a special blessing for the paper boy. Uh, whenever I was a kid, we would drive down the highway. We would go camping or something, and on the way down the highway, there's always random things that blew off of people's pickup trucks or something, and there would be a cardboard box or something on the side of the road, and I would daydream in my mind about, like, stopping and seeing what was in that 
box, right? Man, maybe I could get lucky. Maybe I could hit the jackpot. Maybe, parents, don't you understand, mom and dad, that could have been a box that blew off of a bank truck and it's full of cash. Or more realistically, when I was a kid, I was thinking maybe it was a truck on the way to Walmart and a box full of Pokemon cards fell out of the back of it. And I might really be able to hit the jackpot then because for me, those were priceless things to get my hands on whenever I was in middle school. Uh, maybe it's why well, we'd go to the arcade, right? We would go to this arcade town called Geneva on the Lake once a year in the summer. And during the day, we would go play all these arcade games. And there was always that one that was absolutely no fun to play and sucked all your money, but had a jackpot. And it was one, and in the middle, it said jackpot. And how many tickets? And then all it was was a circle of lights. And you had two stupid colored tubes, and you had a button. And you'd put 50 cents in, and the light would go around. And if you could hit the button when it was between your two colored tubes, you would hit the jackpot. Anybody else know that arcade game? Okay, yeah, like five, yeah, some of you played it like Safari Sands or something, right? And like you would hit it, and you would like try to get it in the middle, and basically what would happen is you would spend all your money in 15 minutes because you never hit the jackpot, and it was always like, dun, 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 you win one ticket. And, uh, but I would always daydream about hitting the jackpot and spending all those tickets on something worthless. You know, that was always kind of like my hope <laughs> is that I would hit that. So we can kind of relate, right? Because now I'm older and my, my daydreams are similar sometimes, right? But the, the, the ideas are much grander, the numbers much, much bigger. And we daydreamed about, wow, what, it, would it be, what would it be like? What would I be able to do if money wasn't a problem for me? Like, what would happen if I could hit the lottery, right? Maybe we daydream about that. Maybe it's like finding that treasure really in a field, right? That long-forgotten we find gold or something, right? Or, or, or a precious natural resource that's on a piece of property. And we know for a fact that it will play out in our favor. Now, Jesus compares those same feelings that would well up inside of you to his kingdom when he says his kingdom is like a treasure that a man found in a field. And evidently in this man's excitement, because he was so excited about this treasure, it was evidently worth a great deal. It was worth enough that he felt comfortable selling his home, and all of his possessions in order to get enough money to buy the field. Because evidently, this treasure in the field was worth such a significant amount that all of his worldly possessions paled in comparison to that one treasure that had been hidden in this field. And if he could just get his hands on it, it might solve all of his problems. Maybe some of his wildest dreams could come true. Now, as human beings, we can all relate to that because we also would like to maybe take the chance on, or, or even see a guarantee we would sacrifice something that we have for something that was much, much better. If we had the guarantee of something much better, we would willingly give up everything we have to get it. Now, if you don't believe me, I want you to think throughout history. Just in recent history, people have been willing to leave their homes, families, jobs, everything behind to move to America in order to pursue the American dream. It's not just recent history, that's literally today people are doing that. In recent American history, people were willing to leave their homes and their families and everything and travel across treacherous, treacherous land in order to find gold. People have left everything that they had without the promise of a better life, but with the opportunity to get something better. There was no promise, but they had the opportunity for potentially getting something much better. 
So it's common sense that if you could guarantee you had that winning lottery ticket, that you would be willing to sell everything that you owned to get something much, much better. And Jesus compares this feeling of finding a treasure in a field, finding something of enormous value, something so valuable and so guaranteed that you're willing to sacrifice everything that you have in order to get it. And he says, that is what it is like when you find the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it very clear through this that there is no worldly wealth worth as much as being in the kingdom of God. There is no worldly wealth worth as much as being in the kingdom of God. Now, why did Jesus share this story at all? He was talking to a group of people, many of which I'm sure were poor, some of which were very wealthy, and he's talking to them about sacrificing everything for the kingdom. And I'm sure that this was like a little daunting for them because they couldn't see or feel this kingdom. They couldn't identify it on a map. They didn't know how they might or may not benefit from this kingdom. But Jesus is saying when you see it, when you recognize it, you will be willing and should be willing to sacrifice everything you have for it. Jesus knew something about his followers, not just the ones that were around him 2,000 years ago, but he knew it would be true of us today, that the thing that would rival our devotion to God in our lives are the things that we can touch and feel, the security and the comfort that we can purchase with money. He knew that the temptation to go to bank statements, stock portfolios, homes, cars, couches, food, possessions, would be a significant lure away from him into security that we believe can be found in the things of this world. And Jesus is very clear with us. There is no worldly wealth worth as much as being part of his kingdom. And we pay very dearly when we choose to value the things of this world over God's kingdom. And he tells us a story, or another thing happens in the word of God, that shows us very clearly what can happen if we value the things of this world and the security and comfort that it offers over this treasure hidden in a field, over the kingdom of God. And this comes to us, uh, I believe, from the book of Luke. It'll be up on the screen as well. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. In this passage, we, uh, we actually hear it uh, titled a little differently in some of the other gospels. Some of the other gospels tell this same story, but instead of calling him the religious ruler, they call him the rich young ruler. 
So by American standards, we have this man who has everything. And I'm going to go to that in a minute. But I love how this passage starts out. Because this passage starts out with a man humbly coming to a rabbi and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't get the image that this guy was trying to glorify himself. You don't really get the image that this guy was trying to like puff himself up. You don't get the image that this guy was trying to brag and, and just prove that he's done everything right throughout his life. He's truly coming. He didn't come and say, God, I've lived all of the commandments to their fullest. I've done everything I was supposed to do from when I was young. I'm faultless in every way. Will you give me eternal life? No, he comes to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He comes to Jesus in much the same way that we would hope maybe some of our family members or our friends who don't know the Lord would come to him. He comes to him humbly. So he starts off well. And we sometimes get really focused on what this young man has. In American standards, if you're very wealthy, if you have influence, and you get all of that at a young age, well, we're very envious of that, aren't we? Even by those standards, this young man has everything. 2,000 years ago, even if we looked at it as an American eyes on this young man, he has everything. He has money, he has influence, and he has all of those things at a very young age. So what we can get hung up on when we read this passage is everything this man is asked to give up. But I think the key thing to focus on in this passage is actually what is this man offered? We get caught up in the fact that he's a rich young ruler and we miss what he is offered by Jesus. At the end of Jesus talking to him, before he turns and hangs his head and walks away, Jesus says, then come follow me. Then come, follow me. If you're familiar with some of the other gospels and how many of the disciples became followers of Jesus, it was because he said, come, follow me. Matthew, a tax collector, come, follow me. The disciples in the boats casting nets, come, follow me. This term has meaning. Even in ancient Israel, it had even more meaning. Because when you were asked to come and follow a rabbi, you were being asked to carry their yoke, their teaching, on to the next generation. To follow them around, to follow your rabbi meant that you followed them so closely that you would get the dust that their sandals kicked up on you. Because you wanted to follow in their footsteps, doing everything that they did. When the disciples were asked to come and follow Jesus, it was very significant because they had been rejected from being Pharisees or religious leaders. They had already flunked out of the schooling program. They were fishermen and tax collectors. Yet this young man comes in for Jesus and he receives the same exact offering that Matthew receives, that Peter receives, that John receives, that James receives, that Judas receives. The same opportunity to be the 13th disciple, maybe, to come follow Jesus. Jesus says, I'm offering you a treasure hidden in a field worth more than anything that you could possibly earn or gain in your mortal life. More than you could possibly hope to obtain. He offered it to this man, come follow me. We know the names and many of the miraculous stories and things that the disciples and later apostles did. They were at Pentecost. 
Peter, when he would walk down the street, people would take people who were lame and crippled and demon-possessed, and they would just try to get them inside of Peter's shadow because people, the shadow of Peter would fall on them. Not even Peter would touch them. His shadow would fall on them, and people were being healed. We don't even know this young man's first name. This rich young ruler, we don't even get his name because he was too hooked, too much in love with money, with possessions, with the comfort and security that he believed his money could provide him. Jesus knew that as his followers grew in their faith in him, one of the hardest things that they would have to do is give away the things that they could feel and see and find security in for something that he was promising them, guaranteeing them, but they could not touch or feel. A security that was far grander than anything they could hope to obtain through worldly wealth, yet we could not see it. And he knew it would take an extreme step of faith. And we see the story of this young man who instead of becoming a follower of Jesus, one of his disciples, and changing the world, walks away with his head hung because he wasn't willing to become active in the kingdom of God. Which takes us to our take-home point today. Our take-home point is the one point that I'm going to seek to make and the one point that I hope we'll take out and live in the coming week. And I skipped a couple of things on the outline. I'm sorry about that. The take-home point is this. The kingdom of God is not a spectator sport. The kingdom of God is not a spectator sport. And I'm going to take a turn. I'm going to tell you a story real quick. Whenever I was young, uh, I was not much of an athlete, and in elementary school, we had the chance to sign up for sports teams. Now, I know that uh, kids started off in, like, football and, and baseball and things as early as, like, first and second grade, but for me, I did not because I like nerdier things. I like video games and things and board games, so I didn't really get into sports, but some point in elementary school, my parents wanted me to join a sport, and I think it was because they wanted me to try it, but more than anything, it was because I was bullied a lot in elementary school and didn't have a lot of friends, and, and maybe, just maybe, I would, for some reason, be good at a sport, and I could make some friends on the team and stuff. So I joined fall ball. Now, I don't know much about sports, but my guess is that fall ball is not the most competitive sport that you can be involved in, right? I, I think we all tried out for the team. Um, I don't even know what that meant. I guess it was just like they wanted to know if they're going to put all the good kids on one team and all the terrible kids on another team, or they wanted to try to balance them out. I don't think anybody didn't make the team when they tried out. But I joined a fall ball team, and I got put on a team with a bunch of uh, kids from school, and, and we, got, we went to Green Valley Park, and we'd practice at Green Valley Park, and then we would play games. Now, I was terrible at baseball, and I hated it. Uh, you'll oftentimes hear Pastor Chris talk about loving baseball as a kid, and, and he wanted to grow up and be an outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I still, to this day, don't understand that, because when I was a kid, if you played in the outfield, that's because you were terrible at baseball. That was not the place that you wanted to be. So every single game, I sat in the outfield, crisscross applesauce on my butt, filling my baseball glove that I took off my hand with grass. Because that's what you do when you play in the outfield in fall ball, because literally no one can hit the ball out there. And I would just pray, God, please let no one hit the ball to me. I was terrified to mess up. Heck, even in, even in high school gym, we used to play football. I had a friend named Cody Caslick. When I was on offense, he would be on defense. I would follow him around so that no one would throw the football to me because I was terrified of having to actually catch the football in gym class. And I was like 17 at the time, right? 
So like little elementary school Mark did not do good job at fall ball. He was terrible at it. Every time I went up to bat, I was horrified. I would hope that we would get so many people struck out so quickly that I would only have to bat like once all game. We'd only ever make it through the batting line once because I was at the tail end of it. So there wasn't a good chance of it getting to me twice if we were pretty bad that day. You know, after playing in the outfield, I would get up to bat, and I never swung at anything. Everything looked like a ball to me. To be fair, most of them were, but everything looked like a ball to me. I swung three times in my fall ball career. That was all one time up to bat. I swung three times, struck out, never swung the bat outside of practice again. Was terrified of striking out. Now, luckily for me, this was the first year that coaches weren't pitching. It was students. So like nine times out of ten, I either got walked or I got hit by the ball. And I would much rather get hit by the ball than swing at the ball. So that was like perfectly okay with me. Like stick, stick my butt out there just so like, you know, make it as much of a body area as I could to get hit by it, right? So that I'd get to first base. The only thing I did like doing was stealing bases. So I'd oftentimes get walked to first base and I'd try to steal second base. Partway through the season, I slid into second base and I sprained my knee I played it up a good bit, got my parents to take me to the doctor, and they got me on crutches, and then I didn't have to play again for the rest of the year, which was awesome for me. I was able to just, like, hang out on the bench, uh, chew bubble gum, and I don't know, I don't know what other, wear, like, really weird, stretchy gray pants every week. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what other people who play baseball do, but that's what I did. And I'd sit there with my crutches, and I loved cheering on my team. I actually liked being part of the team. I like being around people from school and kind of getting out of my house, and I like doing those things. I didn't even mind practice so much, although I wasn't any good at practice either. I would swing the bat there. Um, I just didn't want to get in the game. I didn't want to play baseball. Now, when I think of that story, it's sort of embarrassing, but that's okay with me, but I think it mirrors a lot of our walks as Christians. We are okay, and we really want to be on the Jesus team right? We even want to go to church. We want to be on that team. We want to be part. We want to be part of the cheering squad, but we would prefer sitting on the bench cheering on the other players than ever actually playing the game. We're far more comfortable being bench warmers rather than players in the kingdom of God. So God introduces this beautiful kingdom to us. He describes it as a treasure in a field. And usually our response is we have too much going on in our own personal lives to really get involved. We want to be on the team. The problem is there are no benches in the kingdom of God. There's not a cheering section. Jesus didn't ask for well-wishers or cheerleaders. It wasn't enough for him for his disciples to follow him around and say how awesome he was every time he healed somebody. He made it very clear that the kingdom of God is active. And in order to be part of the kingdom of God, we also must take action. The kingdom of God is not passive. And therefore, we cannot experience it while being passive. Maybe in our lives We've come from another church background and we were really hurt there. And so we feel like we're limping into a new church on crutches. Ah, no, you know, my knee hurts a little bit. I'll cheer on from the sidelines, but I really, you don't understand. I'm too hurt to get involved in the game. Maybe we don't want to put the time in to practice and really become good and the best at what we do in the kingdom of God. Maybe, and what more likely is the reality, is we don't want to make the sacrifice of the time and the energy 
to really participate. It's far easier to sit on the bench, be part of the team, but to sit on the bench. And we fool ourselves into believing that God's kingdom has benches available for us to sit on. Because it doesn't. We're either actively participating in the kingdom of God or we're not. If you don't believe me that the kingdom of God is active, let's look at a couple other passages today. They all come from the book of Matthew. It says this in Matthew 13, 24. The kingdom is like a farmer planting seed, planting. Matthew 13, 31. The kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows larger than all of the other garden plants growing. Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom is like yeast making its way through dough, making its way through. Matthew 13, 45. The kingdom is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, looking. Matthew 13, 47. The kingdom is like a net catching fish catching. In fact, the only passage that I found where the kingdom of God is passive is the one that we read in the beginning, and it was a treasure hidden in a field, and that's because we are sacrificing everything we have to get it. We don't act at all passive towards the kingdom of God. In fact, it's clear that the kingdom of God requires us to surrender everything that stands between us and Jesus in order to be part of it. Everything. The kingdom of God is not passive, and therefore we cannot know the joy of our Father's kingdom with a passive faith. An active kingdom requires an active faith. The kingdom of God is not passive, and therefore we cannot know the joy of our Father's kingdom with a passive faith. An active kingdom requires an active faith. There's an expectation that when we come to know Jesus and we get into his kingdom, that we will do something. That is one of the things that I love about new life. Everything that we do here is hopefully, prayerfully driving people to action, to do something. Because I've been in churches before where every week we heard sermons and never once did it beckon us or push us to do anything. We gained a lot of head knowledge but never gained a lot of heart knowledge. And although asking people to do something is uncomfortable and challenging, it is well worth it. Because we do not live in a one-sided relationship with an unknowable, unfair, or unkind God. On the contrary, we have a relationship with a Father who deeply loves us and is willing to sacrifice everything for us at the same time he's asking us to sacrifice everything for his kingdom. If you don't believe me, let's look at the second portion of today's key passage. It says this, Matthew 13, 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. I'm going to read it one more time. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Now, at first glance, this passage seems very similar to the passage about the treasure in the field, but that couldn't be further from the truth. The passage of the treasure in the field, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, and we are a man who has found the lost treasure. In this passage, the kingdom of God is a merchant looking for fine pearls, and we are compared to a pearl of great value. Notice in the first passage, it is us who give up and sacrifice everything on behalf of the treasure, the kingdom. In this passage, it is the kingdom who finds us and sells everything, gives up everything 
on our behalf to obtain us. It's opposite. So while we are asked to sacrifice everything, it's not to a God who does not know us. It's not to a God who does not love us or does not know sacrifice. Instead, it is to a God who has sacrificed everything, not even withholding his own son on our behalf. He has given everything he has. Sacrificed all of it for us. It is not out of compulsion, nor is it out of guilt that we serve our Father faithfully. It is out of a response of the outrageous love that is depicted in Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. The sacrifice for our sins, when we see that love, is what beckons us to give everything we have to be part of the kingdom. It's Jesus on the cross. Because God has given up everything for a relationship with you. And let me just say this morning, if you're sitting here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, can I just tell you that God loves you? He loves you. He's given up everything for you. He's not all passive towards you. He's actively counted every hair on your head. He's actively had plans for you to prosper you and to give you peace. Our God's not passive towards you. He's active towards you. He has written things into his book, the book of life, meaningful things for you to pour every moment of your life into. Our God is not at all passive towards you. He has actively searched for you, actively sacrificed for you, actively tried to show you how much he loves you. And if you don't know this God, let me just tell you that he knows everything about you. All the secrets that you've never shared with your husband or wife, all the secrets that your parents don't know about, the dark things that your kids may never know. He knows every thought that has entered your head. And amongst all of your garbage and your baggage, that father still loves you and still wants to have a relationship with you. As Pastor Chris always says, it's simple but not easy. It's as simple as saying, God, I've messed up. Come into my life. I see you as Savior. I recognize you as Lord. The Bible tells us if we confess with our mouths and believe with our hearts that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. It's asking God to come into our lives and change us. And if you've never done that, but you want that relationship, then I encourage you right now, stop listening to me. You have my permission to shut me off and start talking to God, because it's far more important for you to have a relationship with your father than it is for you to listen to me this morning. As we're closing today, I want to encourage you. I want to I read something to you, because I wrote it, but I don't, I don't, want, I don't want you to miss it. So it's, I, I don't want to mess it up. Our wealth, time, and energy, and ultimately our lives are not offered up to God out of blind obedience to an unkind or unknowable God, but instead it is a response to the outrageous love we have received and is displayed in God's only Son on the cross. The example of sacrificial love drives us as followers of Jesus to offer up everything in total surrender to advance the kingdom that Jesus established and that the Holy Spirit is working in daily. We must live daily in response to the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, and that will always drive us to take action, which brings us to our commitment today. Our commitment today is simple. 
I will ask someone to join me for Christmas Eve service this week. I will ask someone to join me for Christmas Eve service this week. This is a minor sacrifice in light of God giving up everything for us. It's rather small. It will probably lead to an awkward conversation. There may be a moment of awkward silence. It may be like me talking to my neighbor not long ago, inviting them to church, and they continued talking about the property line as though I had not mentioned church. And I was like, did they hear me? Do I have to reiterate it? No, it was very awkward. But my, my heart and prayer is that we would not allow as followers of Jesus, so if you're a follower of Jesus in here, just relate with me for a minute, that there would not be a day when I come face to face with Jesus and I learn that it was my own comfort and my own fear that stood between somebody else and Jesus Christ. I just want that to sink in for a moment. That when I come face to face with Jesus, my hope and prayer is that it would not be my own comfort in my own fear that stood between somebody else and Jesus Christ. Heaven forbid that somebody is in hell one day because I was too afraid of being uncomfortable in an awkward conversation. It is a small sacrifice in light of everything that God has done to tell them about Jesus. And let me tell you, at Christmas Eve, they will hear about him. So our encouragement to you this week is to not be like the rich young ruler who had security in so many things of worldly wealth, yet seeing the treasure in the field that was worth far more than anything that he had, he walked away all of his riches in hand with his head hung in sadness, but instead that we would see the kingdom for what it is, a treasure in a field, worth the sacrifice of everything we have in order to be part of it. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for today, and I thank you for your word and how good it is, and I thank you, Lord, for this church and its generosity and, and its action, Father. I thank you that I live and I get to exist and work in an active church that actively pursues people, God, that actively pursues your kingdom, that wants to see your kingdom come here and now in Saxonburg. And I pray, Father, that as we recognize your rule as Lord of our lives, that your kingdom would come here to Saxonburg, PA, through the ministry and the work, not of this church's resources, but of the people. The people. Pray these things in your name. Amen.